Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Great to hear you sing. Great to sing uh, that song with you as we kind of just unpack who God is to us in a song. What a wonderful thing to do. And I love the most when I hear you, by the way. And it's not just because I have a bad voice that is there. And if you notice, not a lot of people sit right here. It's not like, it's not social distancing. It's like, it's song distancing from Pastor Paul. If people don't want to be close to me, but I want to hear the volume of your voice as you sing that song with me. It's just a, it has a profound, just a profound impact on me when you sing. So thank you, church. Thank you, church, for being a singing church. Can I, I just want to give y'all a round of applause for being a singing, a singing church. Well, we are excited to close out our series, a series that we've called God's Story. God's story. What we've tried to do in this series is we've tried to give really the entire storyline of the Bible in three moves, in three parts. You're going to hear us talk about this in the future. Sometimes we refer to it as three circles. And we're talking about three parts, three movements that explain the storyline of God. And we felt as a pastoral team, as we were trying to put kind of the cap note, uh, uh, the, the climactic moment on this series, we felt like we wanted to do something a little different. So as a pastoral team, we said, you know what? We need to do something in the service that kind of highlights just the uniqueness of this kind of climactic moment in the storyline of God. So if you've noticed, the service is arranged just a slightly bit different. I'm up here a little bit early, and we're going to do some things at the end of the service. We're going to take communion, and we're going to sing. And the reason why is because we felt like that was the best way to emphasize the conclusion of God's story, the conclusion of this series. Now, if you're curious about Jesus, and, and maybe you, you came on Easter, uh, you watched this online, and you took that challenge, and you said, you know what, I'll, I'll give you three weeks, three weeks to give me the storyline of the Bible. I think you're going to benefit greatly from this series, and especially from the conclusion here. The last part, I think this is where you're going to find the hero, right? Last week was hard. Last week was rough. Last week was the bad news. Last week we talked about brokenness, about moving away from God's design, that movement being sin, and placing us in a place of brokenness. Well, this week is when the hero enters in, and we finally get the clue as to who can lead us out of our brokenness. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been committed to Jesus for, for years, I think this, this series is super helpful for you as well. Because I think it gives you a framework, it gives you a a pattern, a rhythm, if you will, to tell God's story, his full story, to be faithful to all the key points in three moons. In fact, Pastor Matt and I just finished uh, uh, two videos that will show you how to give these three moves, these three parts, or what we call three circles, in three minutes. The video I do is actually probably three seconds shy of three minutes. You notice the theme there. But this is a perfect a perfect thing for you to use when you have that moment, that person you've been praying for. Remember a couple weeks ago, we were praying for one person, one friend or family member we could share the gospel with. Well, this gives you an opportunity within three minutes to deliver all of God's story where your friend or family member will find their true happily ever after. So let's jump in. Let's just jump in. Let me give you a little recap. Part one was what? Part one was God's design. God's design. I think we've got some graphics here on the screen you'll see as I move along on this. God's design, that's circle number one, or movement number one. What does God's design mean? It means this, God has a plan. God has a plan for every area of our life, socially, professionally, spiritually. God has a perfect design for us, 
And when we follow that design, we experience his blessing, and we experience delight. Now, the sad part is we've moved away from that. The Bible calls that movement away from God's design as sin. And the Bible says we've all done this. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But what does that do to us? It breaks us. All right, that's the next move. That's what we talked about last week. It breaks us. And how, how much does it break us? It completely breaks us. There's still some good in here. There's still some good out there. But all of it is tweaked just a little bit. And some of it is tweaked a lot. And none of it functions as it should. There's brokenness everywhere. And we try to get out of it. You see the little squiggly lines on the circle? We try to get out of it. Maybe it's self-help or self-improvement. Or maybe we just give up and let's get numb. And so we just self-medicate Right? Or maybe we look for wholeness in our jobs, in our family lives, in our friendships. And we can't seem to get out of this brokenness. We try everything. But then we realize we can't fix ourselves. We're not the hero of the story. Oh, and that hits just right in the gut. We're not the hero. So that begs the question, who is the hero? Who can restore us? Who can fix us? Who can bring us back into right relationship with God? Who can deliver us from the brokenness that's within us and outside of us? Who can redeem us? Who is the hero? Now, no, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, whether you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ or you're still curious about him, I bet you have a really good guess as to who the hero of this story is. And his name, or his title, is in the name of Christianity, right? Christ. Jesus Christ is the hero. And we see this at the very beginning of the Bible. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We've been studying Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And in these three chapters, you really get all the three major movements in the Bible. All of them in three chapters. Now, you've got to read the rest of the book. You can't just stop at three because the third chapter is going to launch off into explaining how this hero will do his work. But the first description of the hero, the first description of Jesus Christ is this. He is a snake crusher. He is a snake crusher. In fact, that's the big idea for this morning. So if you write down one thing, I want you to write this down. Jesus is the snake crusher. Jesus is the snake crusher. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Let me show you this. God is delivering out his curses, his judgment upon humanity and upon the deceiving serpent who caused humanity to disobey. And as he's giving his sentence, his curse, his judgment on the serpent, there is hope. There's hope in this judgment. Right? Let me show you how the promise of the snake crusher happens in the very beginning of the Bible. There will be a hero. Look at verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. God says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. What is he talking about there? He's saying from this day forward, there will be war. War. That's what the term enmity means. It's used in the Bible to describe warring nations. It's also used as the feeling before somebody commits the act of murder. This the idea of enmity means there is war that is happening, war that is raging, and it will not end until the end of days. Even when we're at times of peace, physically, between each other, 
When nations aren't warring, this war is happening. All the time. Between Satan and humanity. Between his offspring and all that align themselves with what he's doing and God's people. There is always, constantly, a war. But God describes that there will be a winner to this war. Somebody will come in and somebody will win this war. This very complicated war. Before we see the winner, let me describe the war because when we think of war sometimes, we think of, well, there's the good guys and there's the bad guys, right? There's just, there's just two parties to the war. There's the G.I. Joes and everybody else. I don't know who the G.I. Joes is. Cobra? Cobra Kai? No, that's, that's wrong. I'm off. Okay, I didn't watch a lot. No, I did watch a lot of TV, but apparently I couldn't keep it right. right? But we had this idea there's the bad guys and the good guys. Man, the war that he's talking about here is way more complicated. See, because we have set ourselves in opposition to God. In our sin, in our disobedience, we put ourselves against God. So we are, in a sense, warring with God. We see this in the crucifixion. Probably the culminating act of humanity's rebellion is that they would seek to crucify God when he comes to them. When God incarnate comes to humanity, what does humanity do? Give me his blood. Crucify him. That's our ultimate act of rebellion. But there's another player in this war, and his name is Satan, represented here by the serpent. And he is warring with us and warring against God. Because when we push ourselves away from God, we now put ourselves in a very vulnerable position. We're in opposition to God, but now we're in a position where we can be oppressed by Satan, where he can deceive us. He can enlist us in his ranks unknowingly. We don't have to align ourselves with Satanism to be on his side against God. It's this complicated war. Really, there's kind of three parties warring with each other. And we are not just victims in this war. We are villains in this war. We're victims of the rule of Satan, but we are villains in the same sense because we set ourselves against God. And this war continues, and this war is ongoing, and this war is more severe and more damaging than any war that we have ever seen in human history. But God says there'll be a winner. And notice how he describes it. Look at verse 15. Here's the promise of the snake crusher. I'll read verse 15 again. I will put enmity, there will be war between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now notice he's talking about what? The future. You're going to be at war, and then your offspring and her offspring will continue to be at war. There's going to be a future battle that is waging. Now notice the language used here when the winner is described in this war. He says, and he shall bruise your head. He shall bruise. What's it talking about there? That's not Eve's victory. That's the offspring of Eve having victory over the, the serpent. So what is God saying there? You're going to have a son. Way out there in the future, there will be a battle. You won't win it. He'll win it. Look at how he describes the snake or the serpent. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Did you see the difference there? God is speaking. Think of this. Eve's right here. Serpent's right here. Your future offspring will destroy his offspring. But he says, no, that future offspring will destroy who? 
you. So he speaks about the future, but now he's talking to that serpent as the present. What does that tell us? This is not just talking about snakes here. It's not just talking about why humans hate snakes. The snake is something more. The snake will endure beyond this time. The snake will live into the future and fight this kind of climactic battle against her offspring. Just so you think that this is not the serpent, go to the very end of the Bible. Or just not a snake. Go to the very end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 20. Really easy to find because Revelation is the last book. We went from the first book to the last book. Somebody came up to me and said, how are you going to summarize the whole Bible in three parts? Well, we skipped a little bit. Go to Revelation chapter 20, but just to kind of show you the defeat that comes, that the snake crusher will have victory over this serpent, this Satan. Look at Genesis chapter 20, verse 2. And he will seize the dragon, the ancient, what? Serpent. What is he talking about? This is Genesis 3 language. This is the future victory here. He will seize the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, so it's not just a snake, and Satan, and bind, bound him for a thousand years. Now jump down to verse 7. And when the thousand years have ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations, just like he deceived Adam and Eve, that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for a battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they will march up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounding the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Bam. Snake crushed over. Right? There we see in Genesis chapter 3 a promise fulfilled right there in Revelation chapter 20. The snake goes down. Somebody comes and delivers us from the dominion of Satan. Delivers us from the dominion of sin and death. Undoes his deception and the consequence of our disobedience. And look at this. Adam, that first man who fell into sin, believes. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Let me show you this. He gives a promise, God does, in his judgment of that serpent, that a snake crusher will come. There will be a war, but there will be a hero who wins the war. And notice this. Adam, even though he's experiencing probably just dread at this moment. Think about what Adam knows. God has said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're dead. You're dead. You will die. Now God is speaking to Adam. He's been found out. He's been caught. If you're Adam in that moment, you're thinking to yourself, it's over. It's over. And then he hears God speak to the serpent. And God says this, that woman will have an offspring. And that offspring will crush the serpent's head. Wait a second. Does that mean we'll live beyond this day? Look at what Adam says. Very interesting, verse 20. Something we can easily read past, but we don't want to miss the significance of this. Because this is Adam's faith in the promise of God that the snake crusher will come. Look at verse 20. And man called his wife's name. Stop. He's already done this. He's already named her. We saw this in the first part. 
God makes Eve. He looks at her and says, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she will be called woman. He's already named her. Does he have amnesia? Right? You're like, oh, man, see, forgetful in the beginning. Right? Probably forgot the strawberries at the grocery store, too. He's not forgetting her name. He's calling it a new name. Why? Eve is very, very close in sound to the Hebrew word to live or living. Look at how he describes it. Verse 20. And the man called his wife Eve. Why? Why did he rename her? Because she was the mother of all living. What is he doing there? He's believing the promise of God. He's saying, we're not dying today. Today we will not experience death. Because God promised we would have a son. And this son would grow. And this son would crush the head of the serpent. Right here, we have the first hope of the snake crusher. The first hope of victory. And Adam is the first one to believe it. To say, God, what you promised will come true. In that glimmer of judgment there, there's a glimmer of hope. Now, judgment does come. Let's, let's continue on and see the scene. Look at verse 22. Or actually, sorry, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Right here, God's about to send them out of the garden, banish them, judge them. And before he does, he says, hey, I know you're going into a harsh place. This garden has been wonderful. It's been good, and that good was made for you to enjoy. But you're about to go out. So let me dress you for the harsh terrain. So God is merciful right there, right before he judges them. And look at the judgment. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. What is he talking about there? There was another tree. Well, actually, there was many trees. But one of those trees was called the tree of life. And if they ate of that tree, it would give them perpetual existence under the blessed fellowship of God. They could live forever. And they're never told to not eat that tree. My guess is they ate of that tree. They ate of that tree. And eating that tree, it allowed them to continue their existence in obedience to God. They could live with him forever. But now they disobeyed. And God says, because you've disobeyed, you can't have life. You can't have life. You can't have life if you're disobedient. You can't have life if you have guilt. You can't have life if you have sin. That tree is removed from you. Look at how God describes what he must do now. Verse 22, about halfway through. Now, at least they reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now again, go to the last book of the Bible. Let's go to the very end of the story, because guess what? This tree comes back again. Revelation chapter 22. We were in 20. Now go to Revelation chapter 22, because in that final scene, that tree comes back. Just as the snake is crushed, so too life is given back to humanity. Revelation chapter 22, look at verse 2. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit 
each month. Listen to this. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The snake crusher comes. He defeats Satan. He defeats sin. He delivers us from death, and he brings us back to the garden. He brings us back to eternal life. Now look at verse 14 of Revelation 22, because this is key, because now we kind of unlock why Adam and Eve couldn't get to that tree. Look at verse 14. It says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. And they may enter the city by the gates. What is he saying there? You have to have clean clothes, clean robes. It's a description of our guilt being taken away, sin being removed. You know, the Bible has a very uh, concrete sense of sin, that it sticks to us, that it's honest. You may not see it, but it is a part of us. Sin is not just something outside of us. It's something in us, and it stains us. And what's said here, you can't get to the tree of life until you're washed, you're clean. Your sins are atoned for. And when the robes are white, then you get to the tree of life. So there you see beginning and end. You see promise right here. Somebody will crush the serpent's head, and somebody will bring us back to the tree of life. Who is that guy? If there's a war and there's a hero, who's the hero? Who's the hero? Now, I bet, whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, you probably know, again, who the hero is. The hero is Jesus Christ. But let me just show you this. Let me just show you this by way of the language used to describe Jesus. Go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Think of the snake crusher, right? As he's described as the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And it says that the serpent will, what? Bruise his heel. They're both going to be at war. They're both making contact. The same Hebrew word is used. You will bruise his head. He will, or he will bruise your heel. You will bruise his head. Same word used, but different area. Think about it. Where would you rather be hit? On the heel or the head? Right? If Madison Bumgarner came to our church, the great giant left-handed pitcher, and we were going to play dodgeball, and you got in the arena with him, where do you want Madison Bumgarner to hit you? The head or the heel? If you want to be eating all your meals out of a straw, you choose the head, right? That's a lethal blow. This is what he's saying here. Yeah, the snake's going to strike, and it's going to hurt. I've never been bit by a snake in the heel, but I'm assuming it's not pleasant. But what is lethal is when the snake crusher lifts his heel up, maybe shakes the snake off, and does what? Crushes it. Now think of that imagery there. What will the snake crusher use to crush the serpent? He's biting at his heel. So the description is what? He's on the ground. He's on the floor. Verse 14 of Genesis 3 says that he's eating dust, which is a statement of defeat. He's on the ground. How will he strike at his head? Will it not be his foot? Look how Jesus described it. 1 Corinthians 15, and think about the promise all the way in Genesis chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, Jesus described this way, and he will reign until he has put all his enemies under his, what? Foot, feet, bam, that's the snake crusher. Who is the snake crusher? Jesus Christ is the snake crusher. Well, what about that tree of life thing? 
Okay, he defeats sin and Satan, but what about death? Does he give us access to life? Because Adam and Eve died when God shut the garden. Why? Because they couldn't get to the tree of life. They couldn't get there. They were in a, in a lifeless state. Now, apart from God, living in brokenness, only to die. And they were away from the tree that would sustain them and give them continuing existence with God forever. But what does Romans 6.23 say? It's a verse that many Christians know by heart. It says, the wages of our sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal what? Life. That's the tree of life. That's Genesis chapter 3. That's what we've been pushed out of. But then we'll get back there again in Revelation chapter 22. Well, who gives us that? The gift of God is eternal life in who? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Who's the snake crusher? Jesus Christ is. He crushes the head of the serpent. He destroys his rule and reign. He frees us from his oppression. And then he opens up the Garden of Eden and says, Eat. Eat this tree and live forever. He's the snake crusher. But how? How did he do it? If we see the bookends of the Bible, the promise given in Genesis chapter 3, and then all the way to Genesis chap- or Revelation chapter 22, but how did he do it? How did he crush the head of the serpent? Go to that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Because the Apostle Paul is going to tell us. He says the proclamation of what the snake crusher did is called the gospel, which is a Bible word that means good news. And the Apostle Paul is going to summarize the good news in three lines. Much quicker than this, well not Apostle, but this Paul who took three minutes, right? He does it a lot faster, okay? But look at how he describes the gospel, the good news of this snake crusher. How did he do it? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Paul says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. That's the good news I preach to you. Which you received and in which you stand and by which you have been saved. Or which you are being saved. If you hold fast the word I preached, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Okay, stop here for a moment. Can I do something? I just want to nerd out for a moment. Can I nerd out for a moment? Okay, cool. What did Paul just say there in 1 Corinthians 15? He said, I received something. Then the next lines he gives are almost poetic. They're almost poetic. There's a rhythm to what he's going to say. And Paul is speaking about, I received this tradition, which makes you wonder the question, who did he get it from? And when did he get it? Paul uses the same language in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he speaks about receiving a tradition that is in reference to the Lord's Supper. I received this tradition. Somebody told me this. One of the most persuasive things about Christianity for me has always been how early the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was. Because I always thought against Christianity, before I was following Jesus, what if this thing is just all made up? What if all this stuff happened? Jesus was a good teacher. He died. Sad day. A hundred years later, somebody picked up some history and said, hey, let's make this guy a risen guy. Let's make this guy Lord. Maybe that'll allow us to get money, right? Maybe it became legend, but that doesn't match with Scripture. It doesn't match with this verse right here. So let's just nerd out for a moment. When did Paul write 1 Corinthians? About 55 A.D. When did Jesus die? About 30 A.D. That's a 25-year gap. So this tradition that he's about to give, that Jesus died and rose again, is at least 25 years old. But Paul said in there what? I received this from somebody else. When did he get it? When did he receive it? Was it the day before he wrote it? 
We have evidence that Paul was converted three years after Jesus died. Three years after his conversion, he goes to Damascus. He's hanging out with the Damascus Christians. It says in Acts chapter 9 that he preaches Jesus as the Son of God, which means what? He could have received the tradition he's talking about here, this poetic kind of theological creed that he's received three years after Jesus died. Three years is not long for legend to creep in, especially if there's people around who saw him die and knew he didn't rise again. Three years after that, Paul's hanging out with a guy named Peter. Peter's that loudmouth disciple, if you read the Bible. He's always talking, putting his foot in his mouth, but he's super energetic. And in Galatians, it says that Peter and Paul hung out for 15 days. What do you think Peter, the loudmouth disciple, was talking about with Paul? Do you think he mentioned Jesus? Probably at least once. That means he could have received this creed, what? Six years after Jesus Christ died. Which means this creed, this poem, this theological kind of creed that came down may have happened within a couple months of Jesus' crucifixion. Way too late for legend. Way too late to be, or sorry, way too early to be made up. And what did Paul say they received? What was tradition that he didn't make up, but was given to him? Look at the next verse. Thank you for letting me nerd out a little bit. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. And what was that? That Christ died for our sins. So simple. Only a few words, not many syllables. The book with the most profound sentence ever penned by a human. Christ died for our sins. He didn't die for his sins. He wasn't the criminal. He wasn't the criminal. He was the sacrifice. They weren't his sins. They were our sins. And he stood in our place and took the wrath of God, the judgment that was not his. I, I remember when I was first encountering Christianity, and maybe you know this too, one of the things that first bothered me, just really just got me uneasy, just tied my stomach in knots. And maybe you've said this to yourself, or maybe you heard it say, said to you. How can a loving God send people to hell? Right? I mean, it just seems like the judgment of sin is just too big. The crime doesn't match the sentence, right? It feels like there's that tension there. But even as you're trying to resolve that tension in your mind, remember what the gospel says. Christ died for us, for our sin. Which means what? As hard as it is to believe that God would send someone to hell, how much harder is it to believe that God would go through hell himself for someone else? So if we're repulsed by the judgment of God, we see the severity of the punishment to be too big. Remember, he's the one that stepped under it. He took it on himself. And he didn't lighten the load. He took it all on for us. Christ died for our sin. He went through hell for you so you wouldn't have to. And he didn't stay dead. How does the poem continue? Christ died for our sin, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he has appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. He didn't stay dead. Because if you're trying to defeat death and you stay dead, you lose. Right? 
Like if, if I get in the ring with a prize fighter and he hits me right on the button, boom, right on the chin, and I fall on the mat, who wins? He does. If you're in the ring with death and he strikes against you and you stay dead, who wins? Death wins. So the death of Jesus Christ is nothing and is meaningless without the resurrection. Because I can die. You can die. And if all he did was die, then what did he prove? He did nothing for me. He did nothing for us. And he's not the snake crusher. He's not the one to usher us into the garden, usher us into perfect fellowship with God, bring us back to the tree of life, and put to death, death. But he rose again from the grave and now extends to us a gift of eternal life. Now, hearing that's not enough. Hearing that gospel story, that good news story, is not enough. We have to repent and believe. That third part is gospel. And how do we move to the gospel? How do we move to the gospel? We repent and believe in the gospel. Repent means we turn our lives over to him. We say, you're the boss, you're Lord. Believe means we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, that nothing, nothing we do could ever atone for our sin, but everything he did is what atoned for our sin. And then something happens to us. You'll see this on the little visual if we draw the circles together. There is God's design. We move away from that. That's called sin. Puts us in a place of brokenness. And we try to move out of that. We do everything we can, but we can't. And something outside of us has to come in. And that is who? That is the gospel. The good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And what's our response to that? We repent. We repent and believe in the gospel. And then God does something. He changes us. And now we can start to pursue his Design. See, not only does God end the story with the tree of life and us gaining eternal life, but he gives us some life right now. And this is one of my favorite parts in explaining the gospel to somebody. I was just explaining the gospel using these kind of three moves, and I was talking to a friend, and my friend was really struggling with, but, but see, here's the thing is, I don't think I can give up these things. I don't think I can give up these behaviors. I don't think I can just throw away these desires. And I told him, I know, man. If you repent and believe, then you receive the gospel, the forgiveness of your sin, and then God does something. Look at, look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you're trying to find it, move to the right of Corinthians, which, which we're in, and then what you'll see is this. Think, girls eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I know you're thinking, that's very juvenile. Now you remember it, you'll never get lost. Girls, Galatians, eat, Ephesians, popcorn, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, popcorn chapter 2, verse 12. Listen to this. Look at Paul talk. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What is he telling you? Obey. Obey. Work. Christianity is work. You've got to put the work in. You can't be lazy about it. But how? How can I do this? Verse 13 is the answer. How can I work out my salvation? How can I obey? Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will, to will and to act for his good 
pleasure, which means what? God changes your want to. There's brokenness in here, and he changes it. There are things that you thought you could never stop doing that you'll stop doing because he changes you. There are things you thought you would never do, but now you can do because he changes you. And I can't tell you the amount of radical change I've seen in people. I've seen addicts put down the needle. I've seen alcoholics put down the bottle. I've seen people who deal in kilos now take tracks about Christ. I've seen literally, literally, I have a close personal friend who was put in jail for attempted murder. And now he is the cuddliest teddy bear you've ever met. And the guy cries every time you talk about Christ. God can change you. He doesn't just wait to give you the tree of life and say, now. No, he gives us like an appetizer, a taste of new life, of new creation life. He says, I'm going to do, if you repent and believe in the gospel, if you'll just give your life over to me, just give your life over to me, believe in what my son has done and watch me work on you. Watch me change you. Those want to's, I'll change those. He says to will and to act. God changes your desires. He transforms you, and now you can pursue his design again. You can be freed from your brokenness. So what do we do? Right? What do we, what do, we do with this story? What do we do with this story? Of Jesus Christ, the hero. Of Jesus Christ, the snake crusher. Who defeats sin, Satan, and death. We had God's design. And it was our delight. And then we moved away from that. And we all did. And the wages of those sin is death. It's a lifeless existence. We moved to brokenness. And nobody in the world needs to be convinced that there's, there's brokenness. Right? Nobody. We are surrounded by brokenness. We're surrounded by divorce, abuse, sorrow, depression, anxiety, poverty, pornography, sex trafficking, unkind words, unjust systems, broken relationships, broken systems, broken lives. You don't have to convince anybody in this world that things are broken. Everybody feels it. Everybody. Every race, every age, everybody feels the brokenness, and we are like wearing it. We can feel it. It just saturates every part of our life, and it's corrupted even the most internal things in us. We are broken in here. We are broken out there, and no one needs convincing. And it is only the story of God that rightly diagnoses the brokenness and gives the only hope to be freed from that brokenness. So what do we do with it? What do we do with that story? If that's true, if there is a hero, a snake crusher, what do we do with that story? We have to share it. We have to share it. What else? How else can we respond? but to share that story. And here's what I think. I think the reason we don't share this story is not because we don't believe in it. And it's not because we don't want to. 
Honestly, I think it's much more practical than that. I think it's we just don't know how to. We don't know how to. We're afraid that we don't have a very simple, easy, and faithful presentation of the storyline of God, so we just don't speak and we just don't share. And this is going to be really hard for me to say. Okay, really, really hard for me to say. Okay, I'm going against all my basketball loyalty here in saying this, okay? So this is really hard. I hope you appreciate the humility in what I'm about to say. (laughs) I'm a diehard Laker fan. Diehard will be. If you resent me, that's okay. You're moving in sanctification, okay? But I'm, I'm a diehard Laker fan. But I will admit this. Right? And I keep getting reminded of this all the time. Right? I get all these pastors, who, by the way, are so spiritual at Valley Bible Church. You know what they text their lead pastor? You see it, Steph Curry right now? 49 points. Greatest shooter of all time. And you know how I respond? I'm sorry. I wasn't watching the game. I was praying. It was a deep devotion for your soul, interceding for the lives of your children. <laughs> okay, I don't say that. But inside, I'm like, I can, okay, I can do guilt. I'm good at this. Right? But I got to admit. I got to admit. I got to admit. Greatest shooter of all time. Ruined the NBA, in my opinion. He's broken the game of basketball. The guy is just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Every time he's open, he's going to make it. It's just, it's unfair. You know why Steph Curry is so good? You know why he can shoot at just this insane percentage? Practice. You know that guy takes 2,000 shots a week at least. 2,000 shots. His hands have like calluses on them for the amount of shooting he does. Because what he knows in the moment, right? When he does that behind-the-back crossover and Chris Paul falls down to the ground, right? Okay, there, see, there's my real Warrior fans right there. I remember that. That was cool because he was a clipper then, and I was totally down with that. But when he does that moment, and he's open, and he sees that shot, what does he do? He just takes it, and he makes it. Why? Muscle memory. Christian, we have something much more important than putting a ball in a hoop. And the reason we don't share is because we have not mastered the mechanics. We haven't gotten the quality reps in. Steph can make any shot from anywhere because he's practiced every shot from everywhere. But Christians, we get locked up. We see a moment, and there's an opportunity. And we shoot like this. Or like this. Right? What are you doing? This is why we've done this series. This is why we came out with those videos. You need a simple, easy, repeatable, faithful presentation of the gospel so that any moment and every moment when the opportunity is open, when brokenness shows itself in somebody's life, you could say, hey man, can I tell you a story? A story that will give you hope. A story that's given me hope. Let's talk about God's design. God's design is there for your delight, but we all move away from it, and it's called sin. And sin leaves us in brokenness. We try to move out of it, but we we can't. So God gives us news outside of us. It's called the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And if we repent and believe in that gospel, we can now recover God's design. We can pursue his design, and we can live a happily ever after. You need that moment. And I'll tell you, I've used this simple presentation over and over again. I've drawn it on with chalk on the concrete. I've drawn it on a napkin. I put it on a business card. I one time tried to draw it in the air, and that didn't work. It was very confusing, and my squiggly lines just went everywhere. But you need a simple presentation of the gospel, and I hope you use that tool. 
that video that we just released on our website, it's on our app, well, you'll watch me walk through those three moves, faithfully presenting the gospel in less than three minutes, and I want you to master that thing. I want you to know it like muscle memory. You could do it in your sleep. I could go to your bedside at 4 a.m. in the morning and shake you and say, what's the gospel? And you'd be like, God's design is the key to our delight, right? You don't need coffee. If you can say the gospel without coffee in you, now you know you got it. Right? That's spiritual muscle memory. But that's what we need. And that's what our world needs. We need some spiritual Steph Currys who at any moment when the opportunity is there to say, I'll take the shot. I'll take the shot. What can we do? What should we do with this story? We need to share it. What else we need to do with this story is we need to step into it. We need to step into this story. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're, you're watching with us online and you've never stepped into the story of God. Maybe you came on Easter and you said, all right, I'll do the three weeks. I'll give you three weeks to hear the storyline of the Bible. And now you've heard it. But you've never stepped into the story. Hearing the story is not enough. Paul makes it very plain, very simple for us. He says in Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, you know what that means? That's repentance right there. That means I'm not the boss anymore. You're the boss. You're the boss. You take my life. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. What does that mean? That means you believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only means of forgiveness, the only way to have a right relationship with God. You don't trust anything else but his death and resurrection. That's the moment you step in to the story. And as a church family, we're going to do this. We're going to celebrate communion. We're going to sing a song here in a moment, and we're going to celebrate communion right after that song. And communion is a declaration of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is a great moment for you to remember the story that changed your story. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, here's what I want from you. Man, I want you to take Christ first before you ever take communion. I don't want you to feel that you have to participate in symbols you don't yet believe in. That's not fair to you. But if you take Christ today, you can take communion in a faithful way because you believe those symbols. So if you've never had that moment where you want to step across that line and say, okay, I've heard it all. There's no more to hear. I know there's a lot more chapters in that book. But you got all the big parts. There's no more to hear. There's only something to be done. And what is to be done? Repent and believe in the gospel and receive life right now and get eternal life forever later. It will change you, man. It'll change you. So here's what I'm going to do. As we prepare ourselves to sing this song, I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you want to cross over that line, and step to Jesus for the first time, you want to enter into God's story, then you can pray this prayer with me. Now again, this prayer doesn't mean anything if it doesn't come from your heart. These aren't magic words, not hocus pocus. It doesn't work like that. But if you need me to hold your hand, to walk you through a, a, a prayer of faith, I'm going to do that with you as we prepare ourselves to take communion. So church family, let's pray. If you're ready to step, Step into God's story. If you are ready, start following Jesus today.
Just know God is so happy right now to receive your prayer. He's not looking for all the polished words. He's not wondering if you got all the syllables right, put together in the right place, with the right emphasis and all those things. He's just looking to hear from your heart. He knows you. He loves you. He died for you. He rose again. And right now he's saying, take the gift. So whether you're at home or you're here right now, if you're ready to step into God's story, you can pray a very simple prayer like this. You can pray with me these words in the silence of your own heart. You can say this. Father, I admit I admit that I'm broken. I admit there's brokenness in me and there's brokenness outside of me. And that brokenness is because of my sin. Father, I admit I can't fix myself. Father, I admit I'm not the hero of my story. But Father, today I trust that Jesus is the hero of my story. That by his death and his resurrection, he has crushed the head of that serpent. He's given me victory over my sin. He's given me victory over death. I can know eternal life. Father, today, I commit my life to you. And I believe that Jesus' death and resurrection are the only means of forgiveness in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.